Hello and welcome to another podcast from thebackofthenetblog.com. I'm your host as always, Scott Stino, and we are back after what seemed to be a career-ending injury, but alas, the physios have managed to get us off the table and back onto the pod, and we are delighted to be here. There has been a lot of stuff that's happened since the last time we talked, and we will get into that in detail in a couple of moments. But first, we start off with a story that should warm the cockles and at least put a little bit of sunshine back into what has been a very dark, dark period for football in the last couple of weeks. The news coming out of South America is that Brazilian club Chapecoense have been awarded the Copa Sudamericana by the South American Football Confederation Comenbol after most of their team was tragically wiped out in a plane crash en route to the final in Colombia. 71 people, including 19 players and staff, were killed in last Monday's crash on way to Colombia for the first leg in Medellin. Colombian opponents Atletico Nacional, who were asked for Chapucoense to be awarded the trophy in a kind gesture, have been given a fair play award to acknowledge their spirit of peace, understanding and fair play. This is great news for Chapecoense, who face a really tough job in rebuilding their team after such a tragic event. They will be given $2 million in prize money, while Atletico Nacional will receive $1 million in prize money themselves. Chapecoense Vice President Ivan Tozo hailed the decision as justice, telling a news conference on Monday, we were sure that Chape would be the champions. It's just a beautiful tribute. The tragic events of last week led to an unbelievable outpouring of support from the football community with several clubs across the world paying tribute to the fallen players by honouring them with a minute's silence before the start of their next game. Other clubs have offered their support in a different way, offering to supply players to Chapecoense for the remainder of this season in the Brazilian league. There is only one game left, and there's been calls to cancel the game altogether, but the Brazilian FA are very insistent that they feel that the game should go ahead. Chapecoense have informed the Brazilian FA that they don't feel that they can field a team simply because they don't have any players. But the Brazilian FA is pushing the club to field a team of sorts, whether that be youth players or players from other clubs. The game itself against Atletico Mineiro is a kind of a pointless one as both clubs don't really have much to play for. Chapecoense are ninth in the table and fairly secure against relegation. And Atletico Mineiro are in fourth place but are at least six points behind Santos in third. So even if they win the game against Chapecoense, they wouldn't be able to overtake Santos. So playing the game seems a little pointless. However, the Brazilian FA have a point in that they feel that the game should go ahead as a mark of respect for the fallen. Uh, I'm kind of in line to agree with them on that regard, whether or not whether it be that Chapecoense feels its youth side and Atletico Mineiro also feels a youth side just in order to play the game, which will be played in Chapel, probably in front of a sold-out crowd. Uh, I think it's just a great tribute for the players who have lost their lives. Getting through to the end of this season is one thing, but rebuilding a team from nothing is a completely different kettle of fish. Chapacoense have suffered a major loss here, not only from a playing staff perspective, but also from a personnel perspective, with most of their first team coaching staff and management structure wiped out in the crash. The Brazilian FA have been asked by several of the Brazil's leading clubs to safeguard them 
from relegation for the next three seasons, which is a really kind gesture to do, and it's something the Brazilian FA is considering. But even if they do that, it's still going to take a long time for Chapecoense to get back onto their feet. The money from the Copa Sudamericana and the place in the Champions League of next year, the Copa Libertadores, will definitely help them to rebuild from the ground up. But it's going to take a long time to do that. And I think that um, it's going to be a lot harder than most people can imagine. The only bright light to really come out of this tragic event is that it really shows how much of a community football actually has. There's a lot of people who forget from time to time that football is a game played with brothers, essentially. And, and a lot of players over the weekend, you could see who were visibly shaken or, or upset by the events that happened in Colombia that that previous Monday. There's obviously a competitive nature to the beautiful game, but it's not beautiful unless everybody kind of pulls together. And I think that's what we're starting to see with this uh, event. Uh, Chapacoense have had an outpouring of support from all across the world in a variety of different formats. And I think that they will respect that and cherish the fact that their brothers in arms are with them at this dark hour. Moving on, and the World's Players Union FIFPRO has released its first ever global employment report. This wonderful document, which is uh, just a short 268 pages in length, looks at the conditions that football players are playing in across the world. The report is the largest data collection about working conditions in football ever produced and is the first edition of a research series which will be repeated every few years. It provides a comprehensive and holistic understanding of the global football employment market from the top leagues to the base of the professional pyramid. The survey was based on anonymous feedback which allows the players to be more honest about their working conditions but also get down to the more important matters that are at stake. As I said before, the report is a small 268 pages in length, but the good news is that backofthenetblog.com has diligently read through each and every single page and is going to summarize it for you. There were nine main findings that came out of this report, but all of them go into three buckets. One is around contracts and wages, one around working conditions and general interference of career paths, and then the last one, which is a troubling one, is around abuse of power and abuse of players in particular. All three tracks have very interesting stats that come out of them, and we'll try to highlight a few key ones. But I do plead that everybody goes online and tries to read this report. It does take a little bit of time. Again, it is a long, long report, as most of these things are. But it's a really interesting insight into the world of football that few people will actually get to see just simply go to the thiefpro.org website and the report is pretty much there on the first page that you can download. Uh, it does take a while, but um, very much worth the read. So let's delve into the report and talk firstly about wages and contracts. And there were some very interesting themes that came out of this piece of the report. The first thing to highlight is that the global football market is broadly defined into three tiers. The top tier being the global elite of players with superior talent and skills. And those guys are the ones who play at the highest level and are in very strong market positions. Those footballers predominantly play in the five big leagues of Europe, the Premier League, Bundesliga, La Liga, Serie A and League One. 
and or other wealthier clubs in growing markets like China, for instance. Uh, the second tier is a larger number of professional players playing for clubs offering moderate but decent employment conditions in well-regulated and relatively sustainable financial markets such as Scandinavia, Australia, United States, and some of the top clubs in South America, as well as the second division clubs in those major footballing markets we talked about in the top tier. The third tier, which is the majority of the players uh, in the football community are those under constant pressure to extend their careers in professional football, and they face precarious working conditions in doing so with a large degree of personal and contractual abuse. The report shows that the conditions can be found in large parts of Eastern Europe, Africa, and some countries in South and Latin America, but it's not just restricted to their countries like Scotland and Norway who don't necessarily have large budgets to kind of play around with. Those clubs are also in financial peril a lot of the time, and those perils then are rubbed onto the players, and the working conditions become harsher and harsher as, as the years go on. Now, the report makes a good point of highlighting that the common misconception is that everybody in football is well paid. That is not the case. The top tier is where a majority of those who are in that higher tier of bracket um, reside. The, the startling statistic that comes out of this report is that only 2% of the players surveyed earned above 720000 US dollars net a year, and that a startling 74% made less than 4000 US dollars net per month. In addition to this, 21% of the players that they surveyed earned less than 300 US dollars net per month. But that does need to be put into context. The analysis of such numbers should obviously be viewed in the context of the general income and economical power of the country that a player plays in. For instance, 300 US dollars in Congo is worth considerably more than the same amount in the United States. Yet, globally speaking, most players are far removed from an income that provides them with the financial security for a lengthy period after professional football. And even more so, many even struggle to make ends meet during their playing careers. The survey does go on to say that a majority of the players who are getting paid less than a thousand US dollars a month are in Africa, which is one of the poorest regions in the world. However, there is startling stats coming out of Latin America, which shows that 46% of players in that market are also paid a very, very small amount. Now, of course, those wages are also tied to contracts, which is featured quite heavily in the report. There are two pieces to be highlighted here. The first around contract lengths, with the average contract length in the world at the moment being 22.6 months, which is a very short period of time, but it showcases how much players are considered as a commodity rather than as an employee of a club. There are greater options than ever before, and with the transfer market in full flow and a lot of money circulating around that market, it's a lot easier to hire and fire players um, on a shorter period, of co uh, shorter period of time than ever before. The second piece to come out of it is that there is an alarming amount of people 41% in, in particular, who have experienced delayed in salary payments over the last two seasons. 13% um, have said that they had a month delay, 19% one to three months delay, 
three to six months uh, was 5%, and six to 12 months was 1.7%. But even at 1.7%, that is still alarming. Um, if you can imagine going to your job and doing your job for almost a year and not receiving payment for that, that is a major, major problem. The majority of payments that have been delayed, uh, again, are coming out of Africa where money is tight, but Europe is not removed from this equation. There are a lot of problems around payments in Romania and Russia in particular with several cases being made public in the various news outlets. Um, but there are also some some concerning statistics coming out of the Americas as well with 40% of people noting that they have had delayed in payments. Now, out of the people that had delays in payments of their wages, the other interesting piece that's coming out of this is that the amount of players who don't actually have a formal written contract in place, they don't actually have a, co a copy of their written contract um, as opposed to only a verbal agreement, is higher, so 51%. Uh, of those people who didn't have a written contract suffered delay in payments versus 48% who had no delay in payments. And with a written contract, you have a 15% better chance of getting paid on time because, again, you can really force the issue if you have something on paper. Moving on, uh, we're going to talk more about career path and career interference. And there's some alarming stats coming out of the report from that. 29% of players have been forced to change their clubs against their will, whether it be that they're forced into a transfer because the manager simply doesn't want them at the club anymore, or they are um, abused as, as players or abused in terms of from a contractual or wage perspective to the point where they have no other uh, option but to find a new club. The most common way that a player transfers is after a fee is agreed between the two clubs, but that may seem like the player wants to go to that club. That simply isn't the case. 29% of players transfer for a fee were pressured into it by the club against their wishes or they moved to a club that they didn't actually want to go to. I think every football fan has seen this in action at one point or time. You've, you've seen a player arrive at your club or leave your club who just didn't really seem like they wanted to be there. Um, there's a lot of cases in the past where players have transferred into a club and, and seem to have lost their way or, or seem to have just never appeared for the club. That is because potentially the, the player doesn't want to be there or the manager themselves doesn't want that player at that club. Alongside the problems with the contracts and with the transfers come unregulated working conditions and many players face precarious and unregulated employment. The work of the Players' Union and overall professionalization of the game has led to significant improvement in contractual standards in many countries. However, many poor quality contracts are still being used in large parts of the industry. And for many players, the most basic conditions of employment are not fulfilled. In particular, developing football countries in Africa, the Americas and Eastern Europe require an urgent improvement in basic employment standards. In some countries, secondary contracts, which usually cover remuneration for the use of image rights, are frequently used by clubs and players. 
Given the market value of domestic competitions and the marketing potential of players, many of these contracts appear to be misused, for example, as a means to decrease social security or tax payments. Such contracts are also specifically harder to, for a player to enforce in a court in case of a dispute with the club. Obviously, when you sign a contract or have a contract in place, you are signing up to a variety of different rights, including the ability to train in quality surroundings. You're also entitled to a variety of benefits and rights that the club should provide to you. But when these secondary contracts are attached to your main contract, it's harder for them to enforce these rights and they can bypass the benefits altogether. Another piece which is kindly tied to this is the abuse of players um, and that kind of goes on to our last section but we'll just cover it in this section and when we talk about isolation. You may have seen the story about Bastian Schweinsteiger, the German World Cup winning midfielder who has been isolated at his club Manchester United for some time now and been forced to kind of train with the kids. Um, it's clear that Bastian is classified as not wanted by Manchester United's manager, Jose Mourinho, but his banishment from the first team is really a, a horrible indictment of where football is heading. The players that simply don't fit the mould are pushed aside and forced into training with youth teams or into isolation in order to force them to move or leave the club. 15% of the players that were surveyed have said that they have experienced this, not personally, but they have seen teammates who have been isolated or pushed onto the boundaries in order for the club to force them to move. There's also an alarming link between players who are forced into isolation and those who haven't been paid. 69% of players forced to train alone also have reported having experienced delays in the payments, with 45% forced to train alone and that haven't been paid for more than six months. This links to our last topic of the report, which is the abuse of players. A large number of players have suffered from discrimination, violence, or harassment, and that abuse comes in a variety of different forms. The players who have suffered abuse at the hands of management have gone on to speak about it in large lengths, but it's the abuse that comes from the fans that is the most troubling. The report suggests that fans were responsible for 55% of the violent acts against the players, Threats of violence, bullying, harassment and discrimination are mostly heard on the terraces at match day, but there are some incidences where physical violence has taken place. You've seen several fans jumping over the barriers to attack players and coaching staff, but also there have been several incidences in the last few months where you've seen players attacked outside of football on their way to work or on the way home. Of course, it's not just the fans who are responsible for this abuse of the players. There are some cases where management and coaching staff have been classified as abusing their authority and abusing their staff at their disposal. The report does suggest that a quarter of all of the players that were surveyed have experienced or have seen abuse by management or coaching staff of several players either at their club or at other clubs that they have been at. 
It is remarkable to think that this happens in professional football at any level. Um, I think if you think of it from a work environment or from your perspective, you wouldn't put up with it if you went to work and a colleague or manager was abusing you. So why should the footballers have to do that? Just because they are athletes and paid to play football for a living doesn't necessarily mean that they neglect the right to have a safe working environment and not be abused or threatened by their manager or coaching staff. Finally, the report does talk about the need to protect younger players, and that is a really relevant issue right now, especially with what's happening in the United Kingdom and the plethora of former pros that are coming out with uh, reports of being sexually abused as young footballers. Since the ex-crew defender Andy Woodward waived his right to anonymity, to say that he was a victim of sexual abuse as a young player, more than 350 people have alleged to have come forward and said that they were also victims of abuse at the hands of coaches um, up and down the country. Whilst the report doesn't actually go into this, the report focuses more on trying to help the youngsters finish their educations and continue to protect them against things like physical and uh, physical abuse by players or discrimination by other parties. The need for the report to revisit this topic in particular uh, in its next iteration and talk more specifically about physical and sexual abuse at the hands of coaching and management staff uh, when they were in youth levels uh, has really become one of the more key points to come out of this report. So that's it. That is the report. As again, I would urge everybody to go and read it. Um, it is a detailed document, but it's really interesting to kind of delve into the various different topics that we've kind of skimmed over today. As always, the pod is here for you, so we're looking to get your feelings and reactions to today's pod, but also suggestions for future pods. So if you have any, hit us up on backthenetblog.com or on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages. That's it for now, so hope you enjoyed the pod, and check out any previous pods we've done at backthenetblog.com.